Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeza de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Welcome back to the Paseo Podcast, everyone, and Happy New Year. A little hesitant to say Happy New Year because I don't want to jinx us after the year we just had, but uh, here's hoping 2021 brings more highs than lows for all of us. One thing we really appreciated this past year was you all downloading our episodes and tuning in each week for different conversations with Boricuas from all around the world. If you're new to the show, keep up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Paseo Podcast. If you really like what you hear, give us a good rating and leave a comment too on whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on, if you can. On today's show, we welcome Constanza Eliana Chinea. Among other things, she's a yoga teacher and founder of Embody Inclusivity, which centers social justice and wellness and offers decolonization and anti-racism education to people from all walks of life. Definitely give her website, embodyinclusivity.com, a visit to see all the work she and her organization are doing. With Constanza as our guest today, and it being the start of a new year where we're all making resolutions, I think, uh, for 2021 to better ourselves, what better way to kick off our first week back than to talk about wellness and decolonizing it? But before we get into that, let's cover some news. Admittedly, I unplugged from the internet shortly after our last episode, and while it was pretty glorious to disconnect, I'm a bit behind on the news. So that's kind of the after effect of trying to just go uh, go full-on coqui uh, on the, the social media front, on the internet front. Um, definitely feel awesome <laughs> in that moment, uh, but definitely missed y'all and, and sharing some, some really cool Boricua content. Uh, but there are a few things I'd like to share with you all. Keep in mind, I'm recording this uh, a few days before it airs, so the news cycle could change between now and this Thursday. So anyway, let's hop into things. First up, on December 21st, friend of the show, Cristina Pasiones Zayas, was sworn in as state senator for the 20th district here in Illinois. Cristina filled the vacated seat of another former guest of the show, Iris Martinez, who we interviewed during her campaign to become the clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County. Say that 10 times fast. That was a race in which Iris won. Give our episodes with both Cristina and Iris a listen if you want to learn more about them. We'll include links to those episodes in the show notes. But congrats and best of luck to Cristina and Iris in their new roles. Hoping to see Cristina do some great things, especially in the Illinois Congress. Speaking of friends of the show, co-jefas of Lolita Productions, Brianna Ramirez and Marisa Diaz Arce were on Chicago tonight this past Monday. They talked about the community events they organized meant to create platforms and opportunities for artists of color. Here's a clip of how PBS introed the segment. Named after Puerto Rican activist Lolita Lebron, Lolita Productions took over Humboldt Park earlier this year to turn it into a bodega, a blend between a community grocery store and farmer's market. There, primarily Spanish artists, vendors, and small business owners were encouraged to showcase their work. One of their more popular events, Lolita's Bodega, was highlighted specifically during the segment. Here's another clip from PBS with some words from Brianna and Marisa um, after the narrator speaks. 
Held for a few hours on a weekend afternoon, co-founders Brianna and Marissa say by their third event, artists had collectively made over $22,000. The farmer's markets that I've been to, it's been a nice vibe, but it's more about getting to sell something. Whereas when you come to a bodega, you're hanging out. Like someone might offer you a drink. There's gonna be food, like, it's a good time. It's not just a place to come in and spend money. It really is about, to Brianna's point, about community, where we all come together because we would not be able to do what we do if it wasn't for the people who believed in our capabilities. Without question, they both have worked their butts off trying to create a platform for BIPOC artists from all over. So always grateful to see the awesome work those two continue to churn out. I know they've been strong supporters of the work we do here on the show. And on a quick fun note, I was caught by surprise when watching this segment because the Paseo podcast made a special appearance on PBS during this segment. Um, and it was actually in the part of the segment where uh, they were showcasing the different artists they support. So we posted that clip and the segment on our Twitter and Facebook if you're interested in watching either. Oh, and if you're hearing about Lolita Productions for the first time or hearing Lolita Lebron's name for the first time, give our episode on Lolita Lebron a listen. We interviewed both Marisa and Brianna about Lolita Productions and other people who were inspired by and knew Lolita herself. We'll include that in the show notes as well. Last couple pieces of news here, the Associated Press reported that the Trump administration announced this past Tuesday that it will award a $3.7 billion grant to help Puerto Rico rebuild water and wastewater treatment plants, pumping stations, and reservoirs damaged by Hurricane Maria. Fingers crossed that this actually happens, but I seriously doubt it, given this administration's total lack of care for the devastation caused by the Huracan more than three years ago. Maybe the Biden administration will actually give a darn about Puerto Rico, but as history has shown us, La Isla will most likely be left out in the cold. I hope I'm wrong. Of course, I can't bring up Biden and Trump without talking about the Georgia elections. Uh, there is the special election, the runoff election happening this week. They both uh, campaigned there for people running under their respective parties. Right now, Georgia has over 93,000 Puerto Ricanos residing within it who all of which I hope um, are voting, if they can. As I record this, it was announced that uh, Raphael Warnock has beat uh, Kelly Loeffler. Uh, John Ossoff is currently ahead of David Perdue. So we could have two Democratic wins in the state of Georgia, which would be uh, a pretty big milestone for the state. Hopefully it's not like the U.S. presidential election and we don't have to wait a, a full week for the final results. Um, but again, it looks like uh, there's going to be two Democratic wins there. Funny enough, we actually recorded this interview with Constanza just after the U.S. and Puerto Rico elections. But while her and I did talk about the election results and a little bit of politics, I wanted to share the part of our conversation where we talked about her organization, Embody Inclusivity, as well as wellness and the role social justice plays within it. Let's jump into the interview. Our guest on this episode of the Paseo podcast is Costanza Eliana Chinea. She's a yoga teacher, activist, consultant, speaker, producer. Oh my gosh, hang on, I just dropped my list. There's so many accolades here to our guest <laughs> today. Um, but I think uh, as we start every episode, it's best to let our guests introduce themselves. So Costanza, what should our audience know about you? 
Yeah, really happy to be here. Thank you for the lovely intro. Um, yeah, I've been in the uh, wellness industry for about 11 years. So that's kind of my professional background. And for the last two years, uh, professionally switched over to the anti-racism and decolonial space. So I've been doing um, anti-racism education and training for the past two years and uh, lots of decolonization work for the past like three to four years. Um, so that's kind of like my professional background, uh, my personal background, I am Boricua, both of my parents are Boricua, born and raised um, by way of Luquillo and San Juan, we were talking about so. that earlier, yeah. Bayamon, <laughs> and most of my family still lives on the island with the exception of my mom, myself, and a couple other um, family members are in the United States. Right now, I am um, on Tongva land, which is Los Angeles, California. And uh, what else can I say? I've got a couple dogs running around. <laughs> <laughs> Animal lover over here. But yeah, that's a little bit of my background. You're on the West Coast. So what's it like being a Boricua in Cali? I know before we started recording, we were talking about the Boricua population out there. Um, but mm -hmm. you mind speaking a little bit about your experience on the West Coast? When I moved to the Midwest, it was about five years ago, or sorry, when I moved to the West Coast, it was about five years ago. And what I can tell you about the the West versus everywhere else, especially the East side, the East Coast, um, is that everything is a lot more laid back here. It's very chill. Obviously, I'm surrounded by palm trees. I'm living by the ocean. So it does remind me of home. <laughs> but um but it's, there's nothing quite like Boricua culture. There's nothing quite like being, you know, in Chicago, in the Boricua, you know, space. There's nothing quite like being in New York, in the Boricua space there. Um, you know, the Puerto Rican Day Parade, nothing like it. There's nothing like being on the island. So anytime you're surrounded by your own people, it's, it gives you that cozy feeling of home. It just kind of keeps you grounded. Um, so, you know, on the West Coast, we don't really have that. LA is a very friendly place for Latinx in general. Um, but for Boricuas, it's very, very difficult to find that uh, community that's not super spread out in the suburbs. And, you know, you don't have to drive two hours to, you know, get to a party. It's, it's a little bit harder over here. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you know, maybe you're not, you, you may not be finding that Boricua community that's similar to New York, which is like the Mecca of Boricuas. <laughs> it does sound like you're, you're doing some really good work trying to create those little pockets of community with, with your practice, which is a great segue because I did want to ask you a bit about your practice. So you are the founder of Embody Inclusivity. Can you tell us a bit more? What is Embody Inclusivity? Why did you decide to, to found this practice? Yeah, so Embody Inclusivity really stemmed out of um, the multiple different experiences that I had in the wellness community in general, but more specifically in the yoga industry. Um, I've been a yoga practitioner for 11 years, so I've been in the space for 11 years, and I've been a yoga teacher for about nine years. So all of those years of experience culminated in a lot of different um racialized um, events, a lot of uh, racism, prejudice, microaggressions, um, just a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily equate with the yoga industry because they, the wellness industry in general does a really good job of making you think like, oh, it's so positive, it's so wholesome, it's so 
nice, right? Mm -hmm. But um, it's still very heavily dominated by um, by white folks. So it, it was definitely an experience that I felt very important to create uh, some sort of collective where we could talk about anti-racism, we could talk about social justice, and um, that people of color, particularly black indigenous people of color, could be centered. Our experiences could be centered. So that's why I created Embody Inclusivity in general. Um, because my experiences are so steeped in the yoga industry, that's where it's been so far. But now I'm really branching out to include multiple forms of wellness, including mental health by way of therapists um, and you know, uh, dietitians, people who are more body positive, more um, and more body inclusive, I should say. Um, and, you know, all different forms of wellness, which include our own indigenous practices by way of, um, you know, Africa, by way of indigenous native culture, Taino culture. So really kind of branching out to make it even more inclusive than just the yoga industry. Hmm. So I'd, I'd imagine this all comes from a pa your passion that you've developed uh, for yoga, for wellness. Can you take us a little bit back in time? When and how did you discover your passion for, for yoga, for wellness? Yeah, so I was um, in my very early 20s, <laughs> going through a very rough time. So I think, you know, anybody who um, has had somewhat of an immigrant experience mm. might uh, be able to relate to the fact that um, when you're uprooted from your home, for me in particular, being raised in Puerto Rico and then having to move to a new country, learning a new language, uh, having to learn a new culture, it was um, for many, many years, it, the, the assimilation process, whether it was forced or I you know, had to do it out of survival, it uprooted me in a certain way. I didn't feel very balanced um, and I didn't feel um, grounded. I didn't feel like I was at home or that I was accepted mm -hmm. most of the time. So it, I had a lot of mental health issues that I was dealing with and um, I can't remember exactly who it was, where I saw it, but somebody somewhere at the time um, suggested yoga as most, most people um, you know, hear about, you know, yoga is, is really good for the body. It's really good for the mind. So I decided to try it. That was 11 years ago. And I just was immediately hooked. Um, and what I really, you know, learned to love about yoga in general was the philosophy of it um, and the lifestyle. It wasn't necessarily going to a yoga studio, being on a sticky rubber mat <laughs> and doing a bunch of moves <laughs> for an hour or two. Um, what I really appreciated about the practice was the, the entire lifestyle. It was more so of like changing your patterns, your habitual patterns, changing the way you think about yourself, the relationship that you have with yourself and others, the relationship that you have with the environment, uh, the relationship that you create with animals. Um, and that for me was the most important part. So I decided to, um, about two years into my practice, I decided to do a very traditional classical yoga training rooted in a lineage um, based in um, South Asia in India. And when I took my training, the philosophy, the deeper philosophy that I was taught there um, and how to really be a yoga practitioner 
what that taught me was just a completely different mindset that I didn't have before. And, you know, before I was um, a binge alcoholic, I was going out partying probably three to five nights out of the week. It was a lot. I was binge drinking until I passed out um, or blacked out. Um, I was having a lot of panic attacks. I didn't enjoy the work that I was doing. Um, not ha- didn't have very great relationships, particular romantic relationships. They were very toxic. Mm-hmm. And I was really depressed. And so when I found something that um, taught me to have a lifestyle that really focused on self-empowerment, that really focused on taking care of you, it was a complete game changer. So that's kind of what brought me into it. But what I have also learned um, in the last couple of years as I have gone deeper into my decolonization journey is that the yoga has been a stepping stone towards re- reclaiming my own ancestral spiritual practices and being really proud of where I come from, being really proud of the um, wellness practices that have been passed down to us that aren't necessarily trendy, right? Like we don't see them on the magazines. There's no celebrities that are, mm-hmm. you know, out here claiming Santeria, right? But, <laughs> um, or even beyond Santeria, but, right. um, but they are special and they're unique to us and mm-hmm. they're important and it is part of mental health. So um, I'm, I'm moving more towards that, that reclamation of figuring out what were our ancestors doing um, that was nourishing to them, that was taking care of the earth, that was creating beautiful relationships um, between communities specifically. And that's what I'm really interested in now. I really want to dive deeper into that. And there's a lot of people that are doing the same. So it's, it's a really beautiful journey. First off, thank you for answering so transparently and authentically. I appreciate you sharing that story. You did mention this reclaiming of ancestral traditions. Walk us through what are what are some of the topics that you cover in your in your practice? What's the spectrum of topics that that you cover? What we really focus on is collective liberation and social justice. So it's less so about adopting, um, you know, a visual yoga practice by way of like the physical poses and the meditations and all of that, although that is part of it. More so what I want to, um, what I'm putting out there is this idea of decolonization as a liberation practice. And so decolonization is something that anyone from any identity, um, whether they are white, black, brown, indigenous, no matter what identity um, they hold, decolonization is something that you can begin to adopt. And that is what's gonna get us to that liberation that all of us are seeking, right? That that freedom, that sense of peace of mind, um, that sense of nourishment, that sense of balance. Um, and so, For me, particularly, it's a very individual practice of decolonizing. It's a very individual practice of reclamation. And it's also very um, challenging (laughs) because of colonization. Um, Puerto Rico has gone through a lot, a lot, a lot of challenging, violent, genocidal times mm-hmm. and uh and a lot of erasure has happened from that i think i i certainly grew up and most of us um whether you're in the diaspora or on the island grew up thinking that the tainos were completely wiped out off the face of the earth and we didn't really have anything to reclaim from that era um but that's actually not true it's been actually proven through dna through research through a lot of data that 
um, Taino culture is still very much a part of our lives. And, um, and that there are, you know, we have uh, ancestors, um, a direct line to um, Tainos in particular. And also um, the transatlantic slave trade was, you know, came to our islands um, first. And so that mixed in with a lot of the Spaniard violence and colonization, um, Spaniards having the power, continued to have the power until the United States uh, took over our island. So there's a lot of erasure that has gone on over time. And I think our people have been so resilient and so beautiful in um, protecting a lot of those practices, but they also had to hide a lot of those practices. So we're kind of uh, uh, culturally, we are a very um, spiritually mixed uh, people. We have practices from Taino culture, we have practices from African culture, and we've got practices from Spanish culture. So um, mm -hmm. the reclamation process has been really, really challenging, but it has also taught me so much about our people. Um, it has taught me, uh, and and I have unlearned a lot of these myths that um, we have been told over and over again, generation after generation. You brought up a really good point that there's there has been a lot of erasure and unfortunately that's that's to be expected when you're a colony for 122 years the world's oldest by the way fun fact for people that are listening um and it reminds me and this is just like a super small example is not like to equate what what you just shared but we had an interview with a chef, Roberto Perez, who's uh, who has an organization called Urban Pilon. He's all about healthy eating, getting in mm -hmm. touch with with our Puerto Rican roots um, and really cooking up some fire dishes. And I had mm -hmm. him on and we were talking about I, I was sharing with him this story about me trying to make pasteles. And mm -hmm. and I <laughs> I accidentally took the pasteles out of the wrap before bo boiling them. Um, so I look at my wife and I'm like, well, shit, I think these are ruined. So we're like brainstorming. What well, can we rewrap them? Do we have rope so we could tie it up? Um, and I said, well, let's just throw it in the oven and see what happens. So we bake these pastelas. Costanza, I kid you not. These are the best pastelas I ever had. So I'm talking to Chef Roberto Perez about this. And he's like, well, you know, the Tainos weren't frying food. They're right. either grilling, maybe even baking stuff. So if anything... How you made pastelas is more in touch with your Puerto Rican roots than how we traditionally make them today. And I started thinking, like, who says that the Puerto Rican cuisine has to be all acapurias and pastelillos and all these, like, very, like, delicious, I mind, you know, I'll have you, you know, very delicious, mm -hmm. but not the healthiest for you. Not doesn't really uh, give you the, the proper sustenance, doesn't really, like, maybe it, like, hits your stomach in a good way or a bad way. Um, and you get some type of pleasure out uh, in that, but long term, the the health impl implication implications that that can bring about later on in life are, are very dire. You know, my grandfather passed away because of diabetes, and I attribute a lot of that to his diet and what he was told was the right food to eat, or was a part of Puerto Rican cuisine, or just the 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 status of, of Puerto Rico in general and how there's extreme there is poverty there's not when he grew when he was growing up he didn't have access to that knowledge or resources where he could have a life that um, is filled with opportunities resources where he can really take care of his well-being um, okay. so very like feeling very privileged very honored to to have this discussion with you today because I don't think previous generations 
had access or had or had those spaces created where they could have those conversations on, well, how can I really take care of myself, mind, body, and soul? Um, well, so when when looking at your practice, you, you make this point to, to really drive home uh, decolonizing wellness. And I definitely want to talk about the, the cohorts you've created. Could you break down for our audience, what does it mean to decolonize wellness? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I don't think that's a backup at all. I think it's kind of layering onto what you just even mentioned around, you know, food. Um, you know, we have to remember that our island in particular was an enslaved nation. I mean, it mm-hmm. was stolen from indigenous peoples. They were enslaved if they weren't um, killed off. And yep. then they there were more enslaved peoples um, brought onto the island for multiple different um, free labor. And so what that does to um, the people of our island ancestrally is that they have to adapt, they have to survive with what they are given. So a lot of the, the food recipes that get passed down, um, we have to remember that a lot of those recipes were actually passed down from enslaved peoples who didn't have access to the same quality um of food that their oppressors had or their colonizers had. So a lot of these um, health issues that we see in our community in particular still stems from that massive and long period of time of Mm -hmm. colonization by way of the Spanish. Um, But also, you know, by way of uh, westernized uh, culture that America brought to us in the last 122 years. Um, our island has not been treated uh, well when it comes to um, agriculture. Um, we have been forced to do a lot of agriculture, uh, to adopt a lot of agricultural practices that are not indigenous to us in particular. And that has caused a lot of health disparities within our own people. So I think it's really important that we not dismiss history as just something that, oh, it happened a long time ago. It doesn't affect me today. It absolutely does. Um, just like spiritual practices are passed down from generation to generation, so uh, is colonial mentality. So is a colonized mindset. So is um, so is generational trauma. And so um, I think it's really important that when we think of a word like decolonization, we're not just thinking of the physical aspect of a country or a government um, uh, uprooting itself and uh, leaving a nation sovereign, it's literally you are making yourself sovereign. Like you're, you are choosing to um, step away from the status quo, step away from a colonized mentality. And this is an actual theory. I'm not just making this up. <laughs> there are lots and lots and lots of activists before us, um, before our generation that have written multiple books, thesis, they've been in academia, um, they've been grassroots activists, um, another thing that I was remembering as you were talking earlier is that a lot of the the reasons why, um, you know, community uh, uh, has been so difficult for people to um, to find in certain areas, particularly when you're choosing to do decolonization work, is because we can't forget that the government used to literally kill you in the street if you. Uh, you know, talked about freedom. If you talked about liberation, um, you would be killed by the government. You would be killed by the state. So these are not things that, you know, are just in the movies, right? Like these are real things. Activists 
um, were taken away from us, liberation activists were taken away from us um, by the state and to create fear in people. So sometimes what I encounter in my work is I'll use a word like decolonization or liberation or sovereignty or anything like that. And people kind of roll their eyes at me and they're like, oh, that's not possible. Or, you know, oh, that, that must be like a new age thing. Hmm. And it's not. <laughs> Literally, our ancestors have been fighting for our liberation for centuries. Um, literally, the Puerto Rican anthem, it has liberation in it. <laughs> La libertad. So we, when we forget about these types of things and when we dismiss um, decolonization as just like, oh, that, that's just like a new age thing. We can't touch that. There's actually a, tra a, a generational and ancestral trauma response that is coming through there that, you know, a lot of our family members still remember when it was illegal to um, have the Puerto Rican flag flying up on our island, on our soil. Um, so, you know, when it comes to liberation, I mean it quite literally. I don't just mean it physically by way of um, revolution by way of what we saw with Ricky Renuncia. I mean it by way of you as an individual choosing to get away from the status quo mentally. Um, colonial mentality is something that um, uh, Franz Fanon was a huge, huge advocate of. He's kind of like the, um, I want to call him like the father of decolonization theory, as well as um, uh, Paulo Freire from Brazil. And when we talk about decolonization by way of colonial mentality, colonial mentality says that we as a uh, oppressed people, as a colonized people, are adopting the same mindset as our colonizer, adopting it as our own way of life and as the standard. So it's no longer our indigenous standard, it's the colonizer standard. So Western mentality is a colonized, a colonial mentality. We have adopted it as the only way of life, as the only way forward, as the only way that we can see success. And we have completely divorced ourselves from our indigenous roots, um, whether it's African or Taino or both. And so that reclamation process that I talk about is so important to our wellness as individuals, um, because that is the only way that we're gonna move forward and through continuing to have and adopt and, and co-sign onto a colonial mentality um, is only setting us back. It's only uprooting us even more. That imbalance that we feel um, as far as our wellness, a lot of the reason you know, people start meditating is because they feel you know, anxious, they, they can't concentrate, they feel um, you know, out of balance, right? That is directly tied to this colonized mentality that we have adopted from the oppressor. So I, I, what I'm hoping to do is making this type of conversation and the type of language that I'm using here, I want to make that pretty mainstream. Like I want people to know what I, I'm talking about when I say colonial mentality, and I want them to know what decolonization actually means. It's not just a buzzword. It's not a trendy thing that we use for marketing. It's an actual theory that has been passed down to us by brown and black philosophers, by brown and black activists. Um, it's not a new age thing. It's been happening for centuries. Um, it's just that, you know, certain governments and certain um, uh, cultures that have come onto our lands and stolen it have taught us to move away from um, an activist mentality. So mm. I think we, we need to actually move more towards um, 
having a deep understanding of our, our history, as rich as it is, but also as traumatic as it has been. And once we start to understand and really um, move through that trauma, then we can start working towards that collective liberation that we're seeking. Hmm. Yeah, no, I'm glad you you brought up the point about understanding our own history. I don't think enough Puerto Ricanos know how much of a revolutionary past Puerto Rico has. Um, I mean, whether you're talking about El Grito de Lares or 1948's uh, La Ley de la Mordaza, which you mentioned how our flag was what basically enacted by the U.S. appointed Puerto Rican legislature to say, now nah, this bandera, it's a no-go. If you wear it, wave right. it, you know, we could, we could arrest you. Um, right. Which, funny enough, explains why Boricuas love putting the flag on their shoes, their hats, Everything. anything that they could put it on, they're putting it on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything. Shot glasses, yeah. card things, whatever those car things are called, yep, like, yep. you know, bumper stickers. Literally, I have a, a huge flag that my dad brought from the island in my kitchen, just randomly for no reason in my kitchen. Like, why yeah. do I need a Puerto Rican flag in my kitchen? I need it. I don't know why. I just do. <laughs> We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan, porque when we come back, we're going to talk to Constanza about her work, uh, how it differs when she works with white clients versus BIPOC clients, her 16-week mentorship program, Thrive, reclaiming forms of wellness that are truer to our ancestral roots, and a whole lot more. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, Give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's p-a-s-e-o-p-o-d at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Let's talk a little bit about the clients that you serve, though. So now I know I know you're not just working with BIPOC people. You're also working with some white folk. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what the demographic is and you know how many white people you have walking through your door, how many BIPOC pe- people <laughs> walking through your door. Um, but would you say that's it's about equal? Do you get more BIPOC people that that come to you or, you know, what's yeah. what's that breakdown? And you don't have to go into like super specifics. Um, no, but, no. Yeah. yeah. It's been very interesting. Um, Since I started doing this work, I think initially it was a lot of um, a lot of white identified people. Mm. Um, I think they were really just interested in what I had to say more so than actually learning. 
But um, over time, I have noticed a huge mix now. I, I get people from all over. Um, I get people from Colombia, Venezuela, Puerto Rican. I get you know white identified people. I have people who are uh, Black American, um, Black African. Um, so I think it really just depends on how people are finding me um, and what it is that they're looking for. Because I have shifted my message so much um, towards decolonization in particular, and decolonization theory, I want to be very clear, is for specifically people of color. Um, decolonization theory can be something that white identified people learn, but for them it's more about unsettling, meaning you, you recognize that you are a settler colonial and you are actively trying to unsettle. Um, whether that's you know yourself physically or uh, mentally. Now that I have shifted towards more decolonization theory, um, I've seen a lot more people of color uh, mm. really get interested in that. How do I learn about that? How do I adopt um, a decolonized mindset and, and also incorporate anti-racism into my work? Because as we know, people of color can also perpetuate racism. And, you know, particularly in our own island, we have a lot of colorism, we have a, uh, have a lot of classism, and that is all part of um, anti-racism that we need to learn and unlearn. So, um, yeah, it really is a mix. It's a, it's a huge mixture all the way around. Is this a part of your 16-week mentorship program, or is that something separate? Yeah, so I do have, um, it's called Thrive. It, it's a 16-week mentorship program, which is about four months. And that is something that we go through. It's mm -hmm. a little bit, um, it, it's about two months of decolonization theory and then two months of um, really figuring out how you want to show up as, as a leader in wellness, as a leader of color mm -hmm. in wellness, because I only accept um, people of color into that program. But it's a mentorship program, so they have direct access to me and guest teachers that are actively doing this work and actively um, decolonizing. And it's very specific to the wellness industry because um, wellness leaders have been taught a really watered down and whitewashed form of wellness. We have been taught, you know, by white people most of the time, not necessarily speaking for myself in, in particular, but most people when they, um, you know, become a, a wellness practitioner, their teachers are white. Um, when, you know, they become trained as either a yoga instructor or tarot card reader, for instance, or anything mm -hmm. like that, it's typically a white person that's teaching you. And it's typically appropriated. It's a, an appropriated form of wellness. And so what I do is I teach you decolonization theory. And then as a wellness leader, I teach you now, here's how you apply all of this theory and start to unlearn a lot of these watered down and whitewashed appropriated practices that you've learned and start either reclaiming your own ancestral practices or following indigenous leaders who can teach you a um, decolonized way of practicing. So it's very intense, it's very deep, it's like kind of throwing you into the ocean and like I'm right there teaching mm -hmm. you how to swim kind of. Um, so it's really intense, but I do see a huge transformation in people after that four months. And I, I've done some yoga in the past. Um, not very good at it, but I've done it and I've always enjoyed <laughs> it. Um, so do you do you cover these topics all within different sessions uh, of yoga? So are people going through different like, uh, and forgive the ignorance on how to not properly speak about the yoga practice, yeah. <laughs> but is it just like, okay, now we're going to do downward dog. Let me tell you about, 
uh, colonization. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. uh, what, like what? Walk us through. Like, what? What is a what is a typical session like? Yeah. So I think that's a really good point because most people, when I say yoga, they really automatically jump to the physical practice, mm-hmm. right? It's me in a room full of people on sticky rubber mats. And we're all, you know, doing the breathing, inhale, exhale, doing movements, downward dog, all all that stuff. So that's typically what people think about the yoga practice. What I practice is very different. Um, It does incorporate that. But um, when you learn about um, the more traditional classical form of yoga, um, the physical uh, postures, um, that is just one eighth of the practice. There are seven other different um, practices. practices that we utilize to create a a more holistic wellness practice for ourselves. That's why I say it's more of a lifestyle, less so of a, you know, you go to, uh, you go to a yoga studio, you pay your 18 bucks, and then you walk out and you've done yoga. Mm -hmm. Um, Yoga is, is a daily experience. So what I'm teaching people is mostly through like a mentorship one-on-one experience, less so I, I still do you know, what most people would call a traditional yoga class. (laughs) Like I will still teach the postures. Mostly what I teach is meditation and breath work, uh, which is called pranayam. Um, That's mostly what I teach. And it does depend on the identity of the person. I am not teaching white folks how to teach yoga, how to be a certified yoga instructor. That's not what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, What I am doing, though, is teaching you how to utilize Uh, or how to understand yoga philosophy and the tools of yoga, which are the breath work, the pranayama, the dhyana, the meditation, and the asana practice, the physical postures. I'm teaching you how to um, utilize those tools as part of your decolonization journey. So it all kind of weaves together. So um, yes, I do yoga classes, not so much anymore, like asana classes. I don't do those as much anymore. But I do incorporate a lot of these tools, for instance, in every single mentorship session that I have, um, we're doing dhyana and we're doing pranayam. So it is very different. And that's that's what I'm hoping that people will start to understand when they um, are part of Embody Inclusivity is that we're trying to get away from the culturally appropriated um, parts of the practice, like the very trendy things that you're seeing on Instagram with the handstands and all of that stuff. That's not yoga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's something else. And good for them, like more power to you if that's what you want to do. But that's not exactly um, part of decolonized yoga, um, particularly decolonized wellness. Uh, yeah, thank you for breaking that down for me because I was visualizing, I was trying to visualize, okay, how does she do this? Like, how does she work all this into <laughs> just like, based off my own previous experiences? Um, so yeah, appreciate that breakdown. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your plans for the future? What is what is the, uh, I had seen this on your website, um, the 2021 Digital Wellness Conference? Yeah, so it's actually still in the works, um, but basically I have this huge vision that I actually had earlier in the year, um, probably around January, February, um, where I'm working with one of my really good friends and collaborators on um, is creating, you know, typically when people um, see conferences of any kind, doesn't matter if it's wellness or not, typically it's a white-led conference it centers a lot of, you know, um, it centers a lot of like white topics, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know white is not a culture, but 
you know, it's whether it's a tech conference or a wellness conference or anything like that, it's um, typically it centers a lot of whiteness. And my vision is to create some sort of uh, wellness conference or gathering. It's really more of a gathering for me where we're featuring leaders of color, experts of color, wellness practitioners of color, um, teaching what they love, teaching what they know, being amplified and having a diverse group of um, people come and experience what they have to offer. And we're not necessarily going to be explicit about the fact that like, hey, this is a brown and black led conference. What we are going to be specific about is, you know, this is a wellness conference, but we want people to start shifting their mindset towards, oh, that's nice. I'm going to support the brown and black conference mm -hmm. to being more so, oh, this conference looks really amazing. So I'm going to buy a ticket. I'm going to go to it. And by the way, all of the teachers are brown and black which is a totally different experience, right? It's a totally different way of looking at us in particular. It humanizes us again. It makes us, you know, the experts that we have been denied um, of being in an industry that typically centers whiteness as leadership, whiteness as experts, whiteness as successful. We know that we are very successful in our own communities and we want to uplift that. We want to amplify that. So there's no set dates yet. Um, I don't have any specific details past that because it's currently in the works, but I'm really excited about it. And, um, and I know it's going to be really amazing. Dope. Okay. Well, when, once you have all the details, logistics mapped out, definitely send that information our way. Happy to share that with our community, our social media on our social media channels, uh, digital wellness conference, everybody 2021, keep a lookout. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about um your your practice we talked about the future let's talk about your practice here in the present um yeah. we're in the midst of a global pandemic how has your practice changed have you learned anything from this experience how have things shifted for you break it down for us yeah it's changed a lot honestly um a lot of my practice has shifted more towards that breath work, the meditation work, but really I've become a lot closer to community actually in this, in this time, even through social distancing. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not doing as much of the physical practice as I was doing before, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I think what I have um, come to the conclusion of is uh, the physical practice for me made sense when everything you know was kind of chaotic right mm -hmm. it's like you go to work you're around people you go to your house you might be surrounded by you know family members partner whatever and then you go to the yoga studio again you're surrounded by people so it makes sense to do things that are constant where you're constantly surrounding yourself by a lot of people because that's what you're accustomed to and that's what people make you think that um it require your life requires right what I, <clears throat> what I have learned now is that I feel more balanced when I am more focused on what's going to balance me in the moment outside of what's trendy, outside of what most people are doing. And the physical practice for me makes sense in certain instances, and it doesn't necessarily make sense in, in a pandemic for me personally. For somebody else, it might actually be the opposite. They may have not loved going to your yoga studio pr uh, prior to um, social distancing versus now they really love doing a physical practice at home. Maybe they're taking a digital class with a bunch of people 
because they're craving that's what makes them feel balanced. They're craving that sense of um, community and collective, you know, movement. So, um, yeah, I think that's what I've really noticed is that I, I much more, I feel much more balanced when I'm really just focusing on um, my breath, when I'm really focusing on my nourishment, um, when I'm really focusing on how I'm feeling in the moment and paying attention to that day to day versus you know, when's the next time that I can, you know, hit the mat and do a bunch of movement that no longer feels good to me anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been a really interesting to see how the practice has evolved. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, in a couple months from now, I'm going to be right back on the mat, like <laughs> vigorously doing a practice sure. two hours yeah. out of the day, like I was before. I do want our listeners to have a sense of how to keep up with you. So mm -hmm. if you have any social media channels, a website, um, you know, share that with our listeners. How can they keep up with you? Yeah, definitely. So uh, the website is embodyinclusivity.com. So you can find um, blog articles. You can find all of the work that I do. If you want to do some consulting, I have all of that information on there. Uh, basically what the collective is all about. And um, my Instagram is eliana.chinea. So C-H-I-N-E-A. Um, that is my Instagram. And uh, you can also follow, follow the Embody Inclusivity channel, which is just at Embody Inclusivity. Beautiful. Costanza, Aliana, Chinea, thank you so much for being a guest on the Paseo podcast. Really appreciated having you on. Gracias, gracias. Thanks to Constanza, Eliana, Chinea for being on the show today. Next week, for all you Star Wars fans, we're going to have the hosts of Triad of the Force. It's a Star Wars podcast hosted by three Boricuas. Uh, I believe most of them live on La Isla. I think they're all three when we recorded were on La Isla. Uh, really cool group. Uh, they, they started this podcast this year. Uh, and it's nice to see people of color talking about the Star Wars universe, which is um, you know, maybe until the most recent uh, casting uh, in different Star Wars properties was predominantly white. I mean, it still is predominantly white, um, but it's nice to see them cutting out their own corner of, of the market in that Star Wars space. So really excited to, to have them on to talk about their show, parallels in the Star Wars universe to the relationship between uh, Puerto Rico and the U.S. and uh, a bunch more. So, oh, and after that week, we're actually going to have the founder of the media outlet, Latino Rebels, and co-host of the podcast in the thick, Julio Ricardo Varela, on the show. So that'll be a really good conversation. Uh, looking forward to sharing that with you all as well. Um, and then uh, we're, I think after that, we're going to have someone from the London diaspora. So that's going to be an interesting conversation as well. So looking forward to sharing all that with you in the coming weeks. As a reminder, if you, yes you, want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview, or even share a news story you'd like us to discuss on the show, uh, a Boricua news story, I should clarify, that you want us to discuss on the show, uh, visit our website, paseomedia.org, to do just that. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, paseomedia.org, emailing us at paseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at paseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we'd love to hear from you. 
Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.